This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, the Fiji government delivers its first national budget since coming to power. We look at why a lottery-based visa to allow 3,000 Pacific workers a year to stay in Australia permanently still hasn't commenced. The Liberals and the Nationals decided that while they supported the idea of the PEV, they said they supported it in principle, uh, they were going to buy onto the lottery. Uh, they thought that was not that was un-Australian. And an adventurer counts his blessings after being pulled from the ocean following 30 days lost at sea. I'm in a little raft, a red, red little dot, and they're three, four miles away trying not to hit me and don't know my... It was a miracle. All that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, as more Pacific Islanders sign up to work in Australia, experts are warning of the impact on those left behind. While many overseas workers send money back to their families, some women are being abandoned by their spouses. In Fiji, a support centre for women has noticed an influx of mothers needing help as a result. Marion Farr reports. It's a program designed to help Pacific families earn an income, but for some, the opposite is happening. When their spouses or their partner go abroad, I mean, especially for the, the program, money is not being sent back home. Illy Van Bulli is a senior counsellor and shelter manager at the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. When this happens, when they are money are not sent over, they are unable to look after their, their, their children and themselves. At the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, we receive... Uh, influx of numbers of women that come to our doorstep. She says the issue is becoming more prominent. A year ago, a year or so ago, that is when we started to see this trend with those that have gone for seasonal uh, working uh, abroad. Many of the workers travel to Australia under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, or PALM scheme as it's more commonly known. The scheme recruits workers from nine Pacific countries and Timor-Leste to fill labour shortages in Australia, often in regional areas. It now has more than 35,000 participants since the program was expanded last year. Under the scheme, they're able to work in Australia for up to four years. Ms Van Bully says while the scheme has positive benefits, it's also creating problems within some families. Extramarital affairs that is happening abroad. And this is also one of the reasons why money is not sent over. Some of the women that come to us, they didn't even know that men are going abroad to go and work. It's an issue that Dr Matt Withers has been researching for the past four years. What that research has shown is that there are an increasing number of social issues and problems associated with the Palm Scheme for, for local communities and that we're really only just getting to grips with many of these issues now as the scheme matures. He says relationship difficulties are often linked to the length of time a worker spends abroad. I think the rate with which these kinds of relationship breakdowns are occurring is particularly significant for workers who are on the longer-term scheme, who could be away from their families for periods of up to four years in Australia, few of whom actually make regular repeat visits to their, their families in the Pacific, given the cost of travelling back and forth. He says the impact is also being felt in the wider community. There's been very little emphasis placed on the kinds of unpaid labour that is displaced during migration, whether that relates to the housework or childcare or land management practices or cultural traditions that were previously being performed by migrant workers. 
So, for example, when Port Vila was hit by successive cyclones in March this year, um, it was reported that recovery efforts were stunted by a lack of available labour due to increasing migration out of the capital. So I think for climate-prone countries across the Pacific, this then becomes a real threat to sustainability as well. Still, Dr Withers doesn't think these problems will stop Pacific Islanders heading to Australia for work. For all the social problems that are associated with the PALM scheme, the, the financial benefits are really quite significant for, for individual workers and for, for their families and extended family networks too. So I think given that wages are generally quite low across the Pacific and unemployment rates are, are fairly high, there is going to be an enduring attraction to the PALM scheme. Nonetheless, I think these social concerns are going to become more and more pressing as time drags on. And as the scheme matures and with the number of workers we currently have in Australia and that number set only to increase, I think we will slowly over time start to see the real impact that the scheme is having on these home communities. So what can be done to address the issue? Later this year, the Australian government will begin a trial allowing 200 long-term Pacific seasonal workers to take their families with them. To be eligible, workers will need approval from their employer in Australia. Dr Withers thinks it's a step in the right direction, but there are some major questions about whether it will be accessible to Pacific families in the long term. As things currently stand, there are a significant array of costs borne by workers under the Family Accompaniment Program. While Medicare has been provided for for the pilot scheme, going forward, workers will be responsible for their health insurance, the travel costs of their family members, any associated school fees, if they've got young children who will be attending local schools, and the accommodation for them and their family in a variety of, of rural settings. So these are really substantial costs. He says the accompaniment scheme could be improved. I think really what we need to do is to design a, a family accompaniment scheme that, that works for workers and their families and creates a, a greater spectrum of options and choices. Illy Van Bully from the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre wants her country to develop policies to protect Pacific families too. Have something in place where at least that if they do go and work abroad, at least there's supposed to be some sort of percentage of the income that goes back to the mother and to the children or to the family back at home. Fiji Women's Crisis Centre Senior Counselor Illy Van Bully ending that report by Marion Farr. Well, tax reforms, including an increase to corporate tax rates and changes to the VAT, are, are some of the measures the Fiji government is adopting to deal with its huge debt. In delivering its first budget since coming to power, Finance Minister Professor Biman Prasad has said one dollar out of every four must now be sent must now be spent, sorry, on servicing debt, which stands at eighty five percent of the GDP. Winners will be the education and health sector, among others, which will which will both see an increase in funding. Professor Prasad says a boost to health is urgently needed. Over the years, there's been a complete lack of investment in improving the infrastructure of not only the, the country's largest hospitals, CWM and Lutoka, but all across our health facilities in Fiji, Mr. Speaker. I've said this publicly and there's no denying that we have never had such bad health services in the independent history of our nation. We are going to give this a highest priority, not only in this budget, but also in all our future budgets. 
Some workers employed by the government, such as nurses, are also, see, are also set to reap a pay rise. More money will also be set aside for police to deal with crimes, such as cyber crimes and infrastructure. To help me unpack it all is Nilesh Gounda, Senior Lecturer in Economics at the University of South Pacific, and he joins me on the line now. Nilesh, well, Nilesh welcome back to the show. Good morning. I guess just firstly, what's your reaction uh, to this budget? Is the government uh, taking the right approach? Yes, this is this is uh, a well balanced budget given the government's fiscal uh, fiscal situation. Uh, the debt to GDP ratio had had reached ninety uh, percent during COVID, and there was a lot of concerns uh, regarding the high level of debt uh, just prior to the to the delivery of the of the budget. So uh, this is a well balanced given the the fiscal situation the government is in. Now, 25% of the budget will go towards servicing debt. Do you think that's going to be enough to, to decrease it ultimately? Yes. So the, so the budget has, has enough uh, policies and strategy to, to put a downward trajectory on the debt-to-GDP ratio. So it's expected that uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio will go down to 60% of GDP by, by 2030, which is a very good uh, target because uh, it is not easy to reduce uh, debt to GDP ratio if the economy isn't growing uh, very fast or say more than more than five to seven percent. So this is this is a, a, a good set of policies uh, in order to reduce the debt to GDP ratio. But at the end of the day, we'll have to wait and see uh, how the economy grows and and what's the impact. Of the of the current set of strategies and policies uh, that are contained in this uh, in this budget, yeah. Well, there's been a number of measures put in place, uh, value-added tax increases to things like food. Um, uh, there's been five a five percent increase to uh, excise on tax and alcohol, tobacco, things like that. I guess just for people who don't know a, a ton about you know how the budget works, what changes, if any, will people notice in their everyday lives? Has has things like the cost of living been addressed? Yes, so the the government has tried to 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 strike a a balance between between revenue and expenditure, and this was needed because of the high high debt levels and and the high debt to GDP ratio. So uh, Fiji wouldn't have been able to to reduce the high debt to GDP ratio just by assuming that the economy is going to grow. Uh, this is uh, the the World Bank had also uh, forecasted that debt to GDP ratio will reach 100 percent by 2030. So growth alone was not, not, not sufficient to reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio, the debt levels. What was also needed uh, was to, to see where government can increase uh, revenue or strengthen its revenue base. So from that perspective, increasing VAT was important because it's a, it's a very broad-based uh, tax. It will certainly uh, increase the cost of uh, goods and services in which uh, VAT is being increased from from 9% to 15%. So at the moment, uh, VAT was, was, was 9% on 60% of the goods, and it was 20% already on 15% of the goods. So on 60% of the goods, we would expect uh, price to go up by, by 6%, because increasing from 9 to, 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 to 15%. Uh, at the same time, the government has tried to strike a balance by using the additional revenue not only to pay debt, but also to provide support uh, support services uh, to to households. For instance, um, there's an increase in um, social pension scheme for those uh, over 60 years. Uh, then uh, additional money is being provided to to USP. For instance, uh, USP gets uh, its uh, 
this money that was owed uh, by the Fiji government. Uh, it's also tr- included uh, medicine as part of the zero-rated uh, vet. So there's already 21 items on uh, which are zero-rated. So added one more. So I think it's tried to strike a balance. Although it's increasing taxes uh, to, to generate more revenue, it's also attempting to provide uh, support services to, to households to, 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 to offset some of the increase in, in cost of living. Yeah, well, just on some of those services, I want to delve uh, a little bit into those now. We've reported before about the state of of some hospitals uh, are in, uh, particularly with nurses um, leaving the country in droves. Do you think this increase, particularly in health funding, uh, is going to help at all? Yes, the focus on health is important because we have an aging infrastructure. So it's really important to to invest uh, in, in, in health infrastructure. Uh, your question regarding uh, the migration of nurses, uh, I, I, I'm not sure whether this is going to to to, to reduce uh, the incentives to 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 migrate because uh, it's not only about the infrastructure. I guess it's also it's also about the salary and and living conditions, um, etc. So I'm not too sure whether it's going to have an impact on reducing the migration of of nurses. But uh, the expenditure is certainly needed in terms of improving uh, infrastructure uh, in in hospitals. It's Monday, July 3, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm chatting with Neelish Gounder, Senior Lecturer in Economics at the University of South Pacific. We are talking all about the Fiji budget, which was handed down on Friday. Um, Neelish, education is also getting a boost, uh, particularly with the increase in things like AI and, and digitisation. Um, do you think that's going to – what do you make of that one? Will that be a priority? Uh, it's certainly needed at this point in time because to deliver government um, public services, uh, ICT and digitization is important. So government is, is trying and making an effort to modernize its current um, IT uh, and, and other support systems. So I think it's certainly, uh, certainly needed uh, in order to make uh, public services or, or delivery of government services more, more, more efficient. And uh, and uh, what about what about police? I know I understand that they're they're getting more money as well. Is that a good idea? Was was law and order a, a big um, a big issue going into this budget? Yes, it was. It was another of the issues. It's always an issue in Fiji. So so the police getting uh, more budget is really important. But also there is a new initiative that the government has announced, which is uh, what they call as a police beat, and they've allocated around seven hundred thousand uh, dollars for that. And the police beat will involve uh, police patrolling. Uh, in, in, in suburbs and rural areas. This is a new initiative and I think this will really be, be important from the, the policing and, 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 and security perspective. And w- what about in terms of areas that might have missed out, things like su- sustainable infrastructure, um, uh, the agriculture sector? Was there, was there anything that popped out when you, fir- uh, at, uh, when you first glanced at it? Yes, yeah, so there is a strong focus on, on, on health as, as uh, the Minister of Finance has highlighted, but uh, alongside the focus on health, there's a uh, strong focus on, on, on investment in infrastructure, but also building new infrastructure. There's also a strong focus on, on agriculture as well. The focus on agriculture is good because Fiji will need to keep uh, diversifying uh, the economic base and not rely on tourism as the, as the key generator of economic activity. Uh, moreover, agriculture is important because um, majority of the people who, whom Fiji has classified as being living in poverty, uh, live in rural areas, are actually connected to agriculture. So agriculture will be important uh, in terms of economic uh, diversification. So the focus on agriculture is, is, is important. But yes, sustainability 
would be key uh, in terms of moving forward, particularly in the tourism industry, uh, since the tourism industry is, relies on, on the environment to promote uh, its services. Uh, the, the, the impact on, on, on the environment uh, will, will be important consideration uh, in terms of the sustainability of the tourism industry. And I suppose in terms of just how people have uh, have viewed this debt and, and this budget, you know, we, we heard in the lead up to the budget that uh, the Prime Minister came out and said that it probably wasn't going to be a, a popular one. Um, can we blame the, the previous government for the extreme levels of debt or was it a, vi- a victim of circumstance, things like COVID and stuff like that? Yeah, to, to, to some extent, uh, it was the previous government's um, uh, spending patterns that led to this uh, these high levels of, of, of debt. Uh, so, the, the the COVID, uh, the economic impact of COVID just exacerbated the scenario. The economy was already uh, slowing down uh, pre-COVID. So uh, to, to, to some extent, we can blame the previous government uh, for this large debt. And, and the coalition government inherited a very uh, a, a high level of debt uh, when they took office. So, so this was one of the main challenges they faced. And then I think they tried to, to highlight this prior to the budget. And, and we, were, we had also raised this issue uh, before before COVID and, 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 and the outcome is very clear now. Almost um, $1 out of every $4 will go towards uh, paying of government debt. And, and in this fiscal year, uh, $1 billion uh, debt repayment is due uh, for 2023-2024 for uh, fiscal year. And when when can we expect to see uh, the the resu- uh, this debt start to start to come down and, and the pressure be eased? I mean, how, how long is this going to take? I imagine it's it's probably going to be a bit of a marathon. Yes, so I think uh, the, the the effort uh, uh, has been made now, and and uh, by twenty twenty four we should see a reduction in debt. July twenty twenty four, debt to to GDP ratio of uh, of around uh, of around eighty uh, percent. Which is uh, which is a reduction in, in, in of around five to six percent. So it's, it's a good reduction within one fiscal year, but it will take a, at least a medium term, um, next six to eight years, to reduce the debt uh, to to GDP levels to a sustainable uh, level. Yeah, well, that, that definitely does sound like a like a marathon as opposed to a sprint. Uh, Nilesh, that's all yeah. we've got time for today. But thank you again for for joining the show and uh, yeah, providing a great insight on what is a, a really complicated topic. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. That was Nilesh Gander, an economics expert from the University of South Pacific. And you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I hope you all had a safe and relaxing weekend and you're feeling refreshed for the new week ahead. Plenty more to come on today's show. We'll look at why a lottery-based visa to allow 3,000 Pacific workers a year to stay in Australia permanently still hasn't got off the ground. We also find out why several Pacific delegates have travelled to London and we'll hear from a paddleboarder who is lucky to be alive following 30 days lost at sea. Well, the timing of the introduction of a new lottery-based visa that would allow 3,000 Pacific workers annually to stay in Australia more permanently is still up in the air. The government had hoped the Pacific Engagement Visa, or the PEV, would start in July. Dubrovka Volodair spoke to Professor Stephen Howes, the Director of the Development Policy Centre at the ANU, who is a supporter of the visa, about where things are at. Most uh, migration reforms or new visas don't actually need parliamentary approval. They don't need legislation. It's a matter for the executive. 
But because this uh, new Pacific engagement visa involves a lottery, you know, people in the Pacific will enter a lottery uh, because there's going to be so much demand for it. And those, those lucky enough to be drawn out of the lottery will get an opportunity to get a job. And then if they get a job, they get a visa. So because this lottery is a new concept in Australia's migration system, it did require legislation. And then uh, what happened, I think unexpectedly, was that the, uh, the Liberals and the Nationals decided that while they supported the idea of the PEV, they said they supported it in principle, uh, they were going to buy onto the lottery. Uh, they thought that was, not, that was un-Australian, uh, as it were. The Labor government was able to get the bill through the lower house because they have a majority there, uh, but it's now in the Senate. And uh, it was actually meant to go to the Senate uh, last week, but it didn't. And uh, so it definitely won't be starting on uh, July 1st. And I guess it, it remains to be seen uh, whether Labor can get the numbers, uh, either by convincing the Liberal Party to change their position or by uh, negotiating with crossbenchers, uh, get the numbers to pass the legislation required to enable this new uh, Pacific visa. They were also waiting on the Greens to make up their mind, but the Greens now seem to be in support. Uh, that's right. So the, when it went to the Senate, uh, which was now a couple of months ago, the Senate had a committee inquiry. Uh, that committee has now released its report. So, yeah, we do have some insights from that report. And, I mean, not surprisingly, uh, Labor's still supporting the bill. Uh, the, the coalition are against it. But, yeah, the Greens uh, have, have come out uh, in favour of the bill. Uh, they have, uh, you know, suggested some, uh, I think, fairly minor amendments. Uh, so I think there will need to be some some discussions. I uh, certainly, I don't think, you know, we should give up on this visa. I think at the moment it's a matter of delay uh, rather than it being abandoned. But there is a, an element of uncertainty. There's certainly an element of delay. And, and I guess it is unfortunate that it's not being approached, you know, like, like most uh, foreign policy initiatives, is not being approached in, in a bipartisan manner. Now, in regards to the um, committee report and the submissions, I think you yourself have um, made a submission. Can you tell us a bit about your view as to why this, um, this visa would be of benefit? I think the, the issue now is how to allocate the visas. That's what's become controversial. And uh, it's really whether or not we should have a lottery. And uh, from, you know, from my own point of view, uh, the lottery makes eminent sense. You know, I, th I think one key reason for this is that you know, New Zealand already has a very similar Pacific visa and it uses a lottery. So if we just follow the New Zealand example, uh, you know, this visa will be very well accepted. It, it has had a very positive reception. Uh, but if we don't follow the New Zealand model, we go our own way, you know, I think there'll be a lot of suspicion because there will be a lot of demand for this visa. We, we know that from, from the New Zealand case. So we'll need some method to ration or allocate the visas. Uh, and if we, a lottery is, is a very fair mechanism. You know, it gives an equal chance to everyone. Any other mechanism, you know, such as based on skills, you know, will give rise to uh, accusations of brain drain and a perception that Australia is doing this not for the Pacific, but for its own benefit. So I think just from a diplomatic, a strategic point of view, uh, it's, it's essential that we follow uh, the lottery model that's, uh, that's embedded in the legislation. You know, I, I hope the coalition uh, comes around to that point of view. But otherwise, I think, you know, the, the government will likely get the numbers. It will come into force, albeit with some delay. And then, I think, you know, once it's, it's operating, uh, everyone will see that it's, it's operating very well. It's very popular. 
and it will become, uh, it, it will gather bipartisan support o- over time. Some community groups have also made submissions uh, as part of this process. And um, we had some umbrella, Pacific umbrella organizations who came out in favor. But uh, uh, looking through these submissions, there were some critical voices from certain community groups, including PNG and uh, Fiji groups in Queensland, mainly regarding the lottery. Do you think their concerns are warranted? As you said, the two peak bodies that represent all the Pacific communities uh, that put in uh, submissions were very supportive of the PEV. Uh, some uh, individual uh, nationality bodies uh, were not uh, as supportive. And um, I think in some cases we had uh, Cook Islands and Niue uh, not being supportive because they're actually not going to be included in the PEV. So understandably they were unhappy about that. But there is actually a very good reason for them not being included, which is that they have New Zealand passports and therefore, you know, they already have uh, full access uh, to Australia. Yeah, in the case of PNG and Fiji, uh, I think it is true. This is, it is a new idea. Uh, it's, it's going to take time for people to, to understand it. Uh, I think there hasn't been a, a lot of uh, discussion and consultation around it. Uh, so I, I give it some time. But I just underline, you know, the, we're following the New Zealand model. Uh, the New Zealand model is incredibly popular. You know, for every uh, visa uh, that's available, you'll sometimes get 40 people uh, applying for that in, in the lottery. You know, you think about all the controversy around uh, SWP, uh, PLS, or PALM, as it's now called. You know, there's none of that controversy at all around the uh, New Zealand model. Uh, so there's no doubt if we follow the New Zealand example, uh, we will have a very, a very popular visa, and it will achieve its fundamental goal of really making us a much more integral part uh, of the Pacific family. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a strong supporter. I think it will garner support over time, but it, it is a new idea and it, it needs time to, uh, to prove itself. And what are the next steps, do you think? Hopefully it'll be on the, on the floor of the Senate in a month's time. Uh, it'll get uh, the support needed to implement the PEV. And then, although it won't be, obviously by then, it won't be possible to implement it as originally planned on July 1st, uh, it'll be uh, open for applications uh, sometime later this calendar year. And uh, we'll, then we'll, you know, sometime in a few months uh, after that, you know, we'll actually have the first lottery. Uh, the, uh, the winners will be selected. Uh, they'll then have a certain amount of time to find a job in Australia. And uh, those who are able to find a job will then be able to migrate uh, with their families and, and become permanent residents. Let's hope that gets up and running. That was Professor Stephen Howes talking there to Dubrovka Volodaire. Well, several Pacific delegates are in London as part of a regional effort to secure a landmark levy on global shipping emissions. Climate change is a key focus of the International Maritime Organisation talks, which are expected to conclude this week. Pacific nations, including the Marshall Islands and Solomon Islands, are pushing for a levy starting at $100 US per tonne of greenhouse gas gas emissions, the first of its kind. Christian de Borcalia is a senior lecturer in cultural and climate at the University of Melbourne. He spoke with Mackenzie Smith about the effort and began by outlining the case for a levy. Well, the case comes at at multiple levels and the most important element is, of course, that by setting a very high level of ambition in terms of real greenhouse gas emissions is one thing, but then the the purpose of the levy is to help speed up that process and make sure that we get emissions down more quickly than simply by yeah, putting targets down and saying, giving 
shipping companies, giving cargo owners, um, giving the entire industry a very clear signal that continuing to use fossil fuels will be more expensive than shifting away from them. So that's that's the primary goal is speeding up that transition away from fossil fuels. Um, then, of course, there there is a, there are a few kind of um, implications of that because in order to set a levy that is high enough to send a clear signal to the industry, it will raise an enormous amount of money. And um, to some extent, um, that money can be used very much within the industry to kind of cross-subsidize, um, you know, emerging technologies and, 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 and alternative fuels that are currently still um, quite expensive and in some cases um, uncompetitive um, with fossil fuels. So that could kind of close the price gap between fossil fuels, um, which become more expensive because of the levy, and uh, alternative fuels which become uh, cheaper because of that cross-subsidization. Even then, even after doing that, there would be a, a, a lot of money, so to speak, left over. And the question then becomes what to do with that. And the argument of um, Pacific countries, but increasingly also several African countries who've um, submitted, um, uh, uh, made a submission um, earlier this year, where they actually, you know, mentioned the possibility of using something uh, of a market-based mechanism to raise revenue and then use that for um, small island states and least developed countries to really um, use quite a lot of that money, which could, you know, be up to 80 or 100 US billion a year in the first years of the transition as, as current levels of, of fossil use persist, quite a bit of that money could be used to ensure the Pacific has called an equitable transition. And what they mean with that is to, to spend both in sector, so very strictly speaking within the shipping industry, but also kind of in the fringes of the industry and, and to some extent outside of the industry in order to deal with the costs of um, well, climate action, both in terms of mitigation, adaptation and dealing with um, the, the impacts of, um, you know, the, the, the actual climate crisis. And um, all that remains very much to be seen. How, 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 you know, how that will be, how that will be appreciated by um, the rest of IMO member states, and and where that proposal will will land, so to speak. And in terms of a levy, how much is riding on these talks in London? What's on the table now is, uh, yeah, a very kind of clear sense of urgency on the one hand um, for some countries to really say we need to make sure that shipping plays its part but also at the same time there is a lot of external pressure um, because shipping has gone from being a very obscure little known industry um, less than a decade ago to a sector where you have the U.S. Um, special envoy on climate change, John Kerry, um, you know, focus very centrally on shipping in his work with um, President Biden. You have um, President Macron in France, who last week organized um, a, a summit on climate finance, where shipping was also very central. 
something like that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. But right now, shipping is everywhere. And that external pressure, the fact that everyone or everyone, a lot more people are talking and thinking about shipping, puts an awful lot of pressure on, on the industry to show that they are doing their best. And interestingly, the industry um, is in some ways um, really committed to this. The industry organizations say, look, we know this is coming. We know this is needed. Please give us clarity. And that is why this meeting is so absolutely crucial, because if there is any ambiguity in the language of the revised strategy, then it gives the industry possibility to simply, or at least a significant number of players in the industry, the opportunity to to not take action just yet and just kind of continue their wait and see approach. And that is something that we cannot afford, um, you know, as as humanity faced with a climate crisis. So it's it's that that need for absolute unambiguous clarity sending a signal to the industry that the time to take action is right now. It's this year, next year, and every year after, and not something that we can kind of kick down the road for another two, three, seven years. It is right now that things have to start moving. And that is the signal that we need to come out of the negotiations over these two weeks. That was Mackenzie Smith there with that report. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijan Footy Stars. Nijan Footy. Nijan Footy. Monday afternoons at 2 o'clock, PNG time. On ABC Radio Australia. Well, if you've, if you've ever feared being lost at sea, you might want to sit down before this next story. It's about an adventurer vlogger on a paddle boat who lost contact with the world for 30 days in the middle of the Pacific before being rescued. Aaron Carotta was attempting to cross the world's oceans for charity, but almost died trying, as Yanka Hoot reports. After training for a year in the Gulf of Mexico, Aaron Carotta set off on his journey with limited funding from sponsors. He brought a 23-foot vessel named Smiles off of a couple that had attempted the same feat, paddling around the world in a rowboat. Starting in February, the boat took him successfully from San Diego to Panama and from Panama to the Galapagos Islands. But a few months in, his solar battery stopped working, leaving him without a GPS tracker and electronics. I remember it was the 20th, I believe, or 21, seven days later of May. And um, I was 1,410 nautical miles away from the Marquesas. And I had been without power for seven or eight days. And I could not get the fix going because my solar panels had surged with the salt water. I just didn't have the right sponsors. I didn't have money. I wasn't funded well enough to make it work properly at the time. Satellite internet enabled Mr. Carotta to stay in communication with friends and family for a few days. He was able to check coordinates using his iPhone before it ran out of power. Around the 1st of June, I received my last 
option for coordinates. I had been tracking that I was going at the right heading, the right TOG, to properly battle the winds and the right line down and still cut the angle that I needed to because it was a hard angle and I was getting pushed with sideways uh, the entire time. Mr. Carotta decided to continue his journey despite having no power. He estimated he was about seven days away from land when the real trouble struck. And I look out of the corner of my eye and it was the biggest crest I had seen in 20 months or 18 months of rowing. And it was a wave that was probably four meter crest. And at that point, I knew I was in trouble and ducked back into my hatch and braced for impact. And the next two seconds, my whole world turned upside down and I swam outside and held on and just remember thinking that this really just happened. I can't believe my world is really literally upside down. Mr. Carotta managed to pull his life raft from under the capsized boat and activated a safety beacon. Hours later, a Coast Guard aircraft dropped two rafts down and a barrel. However, he was unable to swim to the rescue equipment due to strong currents and a shark circling his raft. For the next 30 hours, he bailed water from the leaking raft. Surviving a cold night in the sea, help finally arrived the next day. Uh, and the boat came into sight. It was a huge boat. And uh, I just remember thinking how hard it was going to be for them to see me because I'm I'm in a little raft, a red, red little dot. And they're three, four miles away trying not to hit me and don't know my... It was a miracle. Uh, it was another miracle for this boat to see me and, and maneuver a one-prop 200-ton boat with no bow thrusters. The rescue was aided by friends and followers from his vlogging page who tried to locate him when he first lost contact. Mr. Carotta's friend, Rachel Palmer, says she was part of the team who communicated with boats in the area when Mr. Carotta's communication dropped out. So that's how we sent messages to the boats in the area. We could contact captains. We were able to ask them to search for Aaron, and we had a few boats out on the water that were doing our own personal searches. She says finding him was no easy task. Um, Aaron is in a very small, white, specialised ocean rowing boat in the vastness of the blue ocean. So as you can imagine, he is, um, when he lost all power and we couldn't find him on the spot, he was like a needle in the haystack. And I think in addition, he traveled between two geopolitical areas of search. So from Peru to Tahiti waters. So there was a crossover with the Coast Guards there and um, coordinating the resources. When asked if he plans to attempt a journey again, Mr. Carotta says he would. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's my answer is I'm, I'm extremely mindful of making sure that my message to help other people doesn't actually backfire and cause lives to be lost right saving me and that i can help others from the lessons learned and stay spiritual in the same way personally when when you're in the current you're hardly rowing i am at least and i was making really good mileage but leaving the galapagos is another story i mean don't get me wrong it's extremely endurance you have to row like i rode 16 hours for 10 days straight just to get out of the galapagos with the currents but the, the seas are safe I believe. I believe there's there are proper ways to do this. Well, it's a terrifying story in there, but uh, a happy ending, thankfully. That was Aaron Carotta there, ending that report from Jan Kahoot.
Well, after years of debate in Australia on the need for and shape of a national anti-corruption commission, the new body has officially opened its doors. And Scandal Hit Consultancy from PwC is one of the first to be referred to it. Over revelations, it, it misused confidential federal government tax information to help its clients. But already the question's being asked about whether it's helpful for any referral to be made public. From Canberra, political reporter Nicole Hegarty has more. Now that the National Anti-Corruption Commission is operational, it can investigate serious or systemic corruption among federal politicians and their staff, federal public servants or contractors providing goods and services under a Commonwealth contract. Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus says it'll strengthen democracy. Our objective here is to reduce corruption in government in Australia. It's to restore trust in government in Australia. Anyone can refer a matter, and already Green Senator Barbara Pocock has made it public that she's asked the Commission to investigate the PwC tax leak scandal, even though it's already the subject of a federal police investigation. I want to see the issues uh, relating to the PwC scandal of recent months before the NAC at an early date. The issues are widespread and the Australian people deserve a really thorough examination of this behaviour. Senator Pocock says the power to compel witnesses to appear and produce documents is needed to get to the bottom of how PwC used confidential government information. The NAC provides a, a robust body that can compel witness evidence and hopefully will have the resources to apply an independent, strong investigative power. Led by former New South Wales judge and war crimes investigator Paul Brereton, it's up to the Commission to decide what meets the threshold for a public hearing. It can make findings of fact and can refer matters to the Federal Police or the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie is questioning whether it's helpful for anyone to publicly reveal they've referred a matter to the Commission. I think it would be better if that is just done privately and quietly because as soon as a politician starts to crow about referring someone, then it does start to make it look like uh, a political move as opposed to an integrity measure. Just the fact of saying, oh, I've made a referral to the Anti-Corruption Commission, that, that carries some weight and mud does stick. The federal government has balked at publicly flagging matters it'd like investigated, and Mr Wilkie says that approach is fundamental to the Commission's success. But if they are going to, uh, you know, crow about it and go to the media or tell whoever, then they need to understand that it is going to discredit that person to some degree, even if subsequently it is found by the Commission that uh, the subject of the complaint did no wrong. Greens Senator Barbara Pocock says she understands that sentiment but points out that PwC is an exceptional case. I can see there would be circumstances when a referral would not be public, but in this case, the matter of the issues before PwC affecting the Australian taxpayer and government agencies are already on the public record. They've been out there for months. Members of the public can make their own referrals online, over the phone or by post. There's a parliamentary oversight committee tasked with monitoring how the Commission is operating, with the federal government remaining open to making adjustments if issues emerge. That was Nicole Hegarty reporting there.
And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Recapping our top story, economist Nilesh Gounder says the Fiji government's first budget handed down on Friday will help reduce the country's massive debt level. So the budget has, has enough uh, policies and strategy to, to put a downward trajectory on the debt-to-GDP ratio. So it's expected that uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio will go down to 60% of GDP by by 2030, which is a very good uh, target because uh, it's not easy to reduce uh, debt-to-GDP ratio if the economy isn't growing, say, more than, more than 5 to 7%. That's certainly good to hear. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next, followed by Nisha Daily. I'm Kyle Evans. Have a fantastic morning.